You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. So we're at our closing session, What's It All About? It's going to be not completely dissimilar to yesterday. My guests on the panel are going to give their impressions of what this weekend has been about, and then we're going to discuss it, and anyone who's got a burning yearning to say something they didn't say before. Uh, I note that my poster says, celebrating individuality in a mass age, but that could also be individuality in a massage. And uh, in the spirit of community and joyousness, that that may already have taken place. Who knows? Um, What have we done this weekend? Well, we've been to a lot of places. We've uh, been to uh, Uganda, and we've been to Rwanda, and we've been to Denmark, and we've been to Davos, and we've been to Aspen, and we've been to New York. And uh, we've spoken Welsh, and thanks to almost every single one of you, we've spoken Latin. Um, we've learned that appearance matters. It's debatable whether it matters in 0.000 seconds or five seconds or five minutes or a lifetime. We've talked about visual acuity. We've talked about transparency. We've talked about the dissociative society. And as Jan Morris said to me yesterday, the writer, she said, I've come here to learn what networking looks like. (laughs) So I'm going to ask the panel to tell us what they thought. I'm not going to give you their full unabridged CVs. I'm going to tell you their job title now and what, they, what I think of them in a nutshell. Speaking first will be William Eccleshare. I'm sure William watched with incredible interest that presentation from Paco because when I first met William, it was here in North Wales. I was about 11. He was a bit older. And he was the big star in the family because he worked in advertising and his first campaign was a Yorkie bar. And I remember thinking, oh, that would just be so great. <laughs> and he's had one of the most distinguished careers in advertising and he's now head of a major international business, the Outdoor Advertising and some business Clear Channel. Then we're going to hear from uh, Neil Stewart. Uh, Neil has about seven hats. The most important to me is that he was the first investor in editorial intelligence, uh, but he also runs uh, a major events and publishing business of his own. Then we'll be followed by Jessica Morris. Jessica has flown over from New York. Jessica is one of those consultants. In fact, she worked hundreds of years ago-ish with Annie, didn't you, at Shelter? Um, If you want sage strategic counsel, you come to Jessica. Uh, Bridget Kendall, I'm sort of impersonating Bridget by being here, being the chair. Bridget is a grown-up person who properly presents programmes um, and did a wonderful job yesterday with the forum. It was just an exceptional part of the programme. And last but by no means least, not in her stage clothes. And I, it, it, it is a tribute to you, Yasmin. You're the only person allowed twice on the programme at this year, but for very good reason. Yasmin as Yasmin... We'll speak last. So, enough of that. William, what did we learn this weekend? Um, What did we learn? Well, I learned that I'm even more in love with Annie Lennox than I thought I was before I came here. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, frankly, I think you'd all much rather have another half hour with Annie than um, listen to us. I thought she was absolutely, absolutely sensational. Uh, I was really moved, really moved to tears. 
Um, I do feel a bit like um, a metaphorical version of uh, David Aronovich's suitcase. I feel I've had stuff packed into me over the last two days, um, and I re really can't close the lid on myself. Um, so much to listen to, so much to think about, so many really brilliant thoughts. Um, let me just think about a few of them. Uh, on Friday, I thought Ian's interview, the interview with Ian, was, was just stunning. Learned so much. I thought the 10-second test is something that will certainly stay with me. I also learned that if you sit on a panel and do this, you can be absolutely certain that everybody's going to look at that and not look at your face, which I think is a really, really good lesson for the future. Uh, so I shall remember that. I think that picture, that picture up there of, uh, was, was just mesmeric, actually. Um, from Alain on, on Friday night, I also just wanted to mention, I thought his, I thought his points about meritocracy, uh, his points about uh, the loser versus the unfortunate, I thought that was a, a fascinating thought. Uh, and I shall, I shall take that, definitely be taking that away from me, from here with me. Um, another thought I, I, I will remember, and um, I'm just not quite sure where I stand on this one, was uh, Mrs. Moneypenny's thoughts about trust. And we're here talking about trust and privacy. And I thought, Julia, with, with all due respect to, to you and your enormous reputation, uh, I thought the, the idea that just because Julia recommends somebody or something makes it all right is a bit of a modern version of the old boy network, perhaps, and we should perhaps just be a little bit careful about, about how narrowly we, we take, take, this trust, take this trust thought. Um, but she did tell, tell a great story about, about Julia, which was certainly worth hearing. I mean, I, have, I, I, feel a bit, I feel a bit left out because I have known Julia pretty much all my life, and we have never discussed sanitary protection. Never. <laughs> so, so maybe that time will come, but it, it just, I did just feel a bit left out. Um, anyway, I come from, a, I come from a, marketing, uh, a marketing and advertising background, so I suppose I should just address a little bit about uh, how, how I see this from an advertising and marketing person's point of view. Where do, where do we stand on this, um, on this whole privacy trust uh, spectrum? And... I think one thing I would just ask of this audience, just to, to, to indulge us uh, a little, um, because I think a bit like Google, we don't set out to do evil. Uh, we really don't, uh, because from a commercial point of view, there ain't a lot of point in doing evil because it always comes back to bite you. So as, as, as David Aronovich said in his thought for the day this morning, I actually don't worry that much about all of the data that people have on me. And all of the research evidence that I've seen on consumers is that they don't actually worry that much about it. And as the panel that I was in yesterday morning said, and, and Andy Hobsbawm, I thought, put it, put it brilliantly, he said, people are actually prepared to barter privacy for personalization, for, 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 for useful things that they get. Uh, and I do think that is true. Um, I do think it's true. Um, I think one of the things that we're hearing, and, and there is a kind of ir irony in this as well, one of the things we heard in, in several presentations was that the consumer today wants, wants authenticity. And there's a wonderful kind of paradox now about marketing people sitting in darkened rooms working out how to be authentic. Um, and, and research companies like, like Ben's or like Paco's helping them to, to, to identify what, a, what an authentic message would be. Uh, and I thought Darcy's thoughts on, on, on the way Starbucks 
uh, don't script their baristas, but um, encourage them to be natural. There's a kind of paradox in that too. But I do think, I do think that, um, that personalization and that using data has enormous um, possibilities. I do feel personally very optimistic about it. Um, it doesn't particularly bother me that through my Oyster card, people somewhere can track exactly what I'm doing. I find the benefits of an Oyster card far outweigh that. I quite relish the thought that last Wednesday there were people perhaps in GCHQ working out why I'd gone down in the escalator, down in the elevator to the platform, come back up again half a, half a minute later and then come back to the station ten minutes later. Maybe they worked out that I'd left my mobile phone at home or maybe they thought there was some more, more, more concerning motive for that. But I actually don't think real people are that worried. I think maybe there is a point that we discussed yesterday morning that we should raise awareness more. We should be more concerned about the data that we give. We shouldn't just give data away for free. And I will use my little bit of, of Latin uh, and say caveat emptor here, because I do think that when we tick that box and we say, well, you know, we scroll through all of those screen loads of, of, of um, consents and we tick that box saying, yes, I agree, maybe we should read or maybe we should be demanding simpler um, definitions of what it is that we're giving away when we give our data. Uh, I would advise anybody who shops online to use a credit card which they only use online and to set a very low credit limit on that card uh, because things can go wrong. But that doesn't mean that online shopping is a bad idea or that we shouldn't be giving away our information or our data. So I think that uh, that is a lesson that, that I would certainly take away. Um, one, one thought about this privacy, this privacy point, and, and it's something that's, that we've all thought a lot about over the last two days. And I think we are all rightly concerned about it. But I wonder really how concerned we are about it. I was at... Um, coming in to Heathrow Airport about a couple of weeks ago uh, and standing in the queue for, for immigration. And uh, there was a man behind me on his mobile phone at Heathrow saying in a very, very loud voice so that we could all hear it. Um, no, I'm sorry, darling, I'm stuck in Brussels. I won't be home till tomorrow. <laughs> and I just thought, how concerned is he about his privacy? <laughs> Thank you. Just to revisit the Mrs. Moneypenny point, as I said yesterday, there's sharing and then there's oversharing. And it just fell into that category. Neil, what did you learn this weekend? Um, well, the first thing I learned uh, was that if the BBC want to get rid of Jonathan Ross, they've got Stephen Sacker. <laughs> um, I just thought uh, he was tremendous. That's entirely my segment of viewing. Um, I think I learned uh, a number of observations. I spend a lot of money on the internet and on data, uh, and we're trying to figure out how it's all going to be working, and I was talking to Bruno from TED about how people will use it in the future, which really reinforces Paco's point that you can do lots of research, but actually you need to sit and watch how people use things. We did a couple of big conferences recently. We broadcast them in full technicolor video, uh, people like Justin King from Sainsbury's, but actually most people downloaded the podcast because they just wanted to listen. It was good enough. That was what they were prepared to uh, take. 
Um, I think from Chris Patton we heard uh, an interesting, slightly contradictory thing. So what he was saying was that um, party politics in China wasn't good enough and was broken, and if it broke up it could be very dangerous for the world. And he was saying that party politics in the United States was broken and it wasn't good enough. Um, and there's been a kind of theme here, uh, which David Aronovich touched on, where people were uh, using politics as though it was something that was done by people out there. It was a separation. It's like when you're in the United States and they use the word liberalism and sort of spit when they use it. Mm -hmm. People use politics and they sort of spit when they use it. And actually quite a lot of people in here, some of whom are obviously Guardian reading chatter classes, do separate themselves even though they're in the persuasion business, they separate themselves. And Claire Fox made a powerful point about all these outsourcing of politics and decision-making. And that disengagement seems to me to be uh, a pretty uh, dangerous thing. Neil Ferguson's point about um, almost the psychology of uh, trust and reactions to financial crisis, the desire to move on, to be in a place that's new and is safe and to forget about the mistakes that we've made. Um, I think there's been a bit of that here as well. Um, we, when we talk about trust, trust is an important part on a spectrum of emotions that are usually, are usually negotiated by politicians. And uh, trust, you go up beyond trust, you do get some companies that are daft enough to try and persuade people to love them or to fight evil. Uh, some people would say they should just be careful about that language. But of course, if you're trying to maintain trust, then you have to be able to avoid blame and you have to be able to manage uh, hatred. And it seemed to me there wasn't enough recognition in this weekend that the unraveling of what's happening uh, in banking and other stuff, there's still a lot of hatred and anger to be worked out and that uh, politics is the only mechanism that we have short of violence or authoritarianism to do it. Imperfect and broken uh, though it is. Um, there were a couple of uh, quite... Uh, I had two very personal uh, sort of shocking bits that affected me uh, individually um, over the course of this weekend. One was when Ben Page was up here and he was talking about the failure of the polls in 1992. I was Neil Kinnock's political secretary. I was the guy that took a call from John Cole, the BBC correspondent, at 6 o'clock to say, don't tell anybody else, but the BBC polls exits at 6 o'clock in the evening with four or five hours still to go, suggest that you're going to win. Now, I decided not to tell Neil Kinnock that, and I was very glad that I didn't. Um, <coughs> but to revisit the pain of all of that, um, a lot of you are marketing people here, um, I did a piece with uh, Steve Richards on Radio 4, and I was just we were going along talking about things, and I made the point that Kinnock had got nearly three-quarters of a million votes more in 92 than Blair did in 205, but still lost. He got a big market share on a turnout of 78%. You know, uh, if you looked at him like that, he's a much more successful politician than people think. Uh, and I just want to uh, remind people of the perspectives of how we look and how broken our politics are, that we are, we are wondering whether we're going to get a turnout of 55% or 65%. You know, both of them are a failure. The other very personal bits was obviously watching uh, Yasmin's performance, which was just uh, completely staggering. 
about that personal journey and no going back. But then the second thing that really hit me here was what Annie Lennox said this morning. Because this is my posh voice. I'm from Aberdeen. I didn't speak English when I went to university. I spoke Doric. And it caused me tremendous trouble. And I hardly ever hear it. And I know that Doric, I don't know if Annie agrees, but Doric is more or less finished and will die uh, with our generation. We're the last people that can speak it. The only other person in public life I know that can speak it is Jim Doherty. Uh, I can't write it. It's going to fade away. And when I was listening to your story and connecting with it, uh, the optimistic part is that your individuality has to move on and you have to get over some of these kinds of things. So um, when I was listening to Annie Lennox, I was thinking that you can, you can take the quine out of Aberdeen, that you can't attack Aberdeen out of the quine. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, when I was speaking to her earlier, I discovered that my English kept breaking down and I kept falling back into speaking like I used to speak when I was growing up and nobody can fit I was saying. Um, <coughs> and, uh, but we're all moving into the behaviour change. The piece that Philip uh, Blonde and uh, Charlie did, I think was, was very, I was very, very struck by how lots of old certainties were breaking up. I felt like I was back in the turning point, 1979 to 1983, uh, when people like David Ronovich and me were running about in student politics. You can feel all the stuff shifting. You can hear people talking. Um, and I thought Charlie's presentation was absolutely fa fantastic. And I'm not sure that any of the political parties are offering his solution, which I think is the right one. But we are all in behaviour change um, of various kinds, whether it's persuading people to buy, to vote, to do other things, um, and suddenly it's going to be changing very fast. And all I want to say is that the negotiation about privacy and what can be done online uh, between corporations and people, society in general, that negotiation is politics. And the, politics, the politicians should be the negotiators. We may have a pretty rum bunch at the moment, but you need to understand that politics is really important. And politics, as I, one of my catchphrases, is everybody needs to remember that half of all politics is still and always will be the management of hatred as well as the building of trust. <laughs> Jessica. Cool. Don't you feel really sorry for people throughout this weekend as we've had a, success, a, a series of just the most extraordinary, brilliantly, interestingly and very varied presentations. And for everybody who comes up to the platform, I feel sorry for them, because I think, how can you possibly fo follow that? How can you fo follow Annie? I mean, here's here to Paco. Yes to Annie, but Paco, you managed to do that, to follow Annie Lennox. I thought that was amazing. Um, so I can't possibly begin. My, my suitcase collapsed a very long time ago. It kind of collapsed on Friday night with Ian. Um, and, and I had to throw it a while ago. So I can't begin to go back over everything that's gone in, in, into the head. There, there are just two themes that seem to me that, that, that come out that I, is all I can begin to make sense of. And one is, you know, why we're all here. We're all here because we're really interested in what makes us and other people tick. We want to understand how to influence the way in which we think and the way we behave. And I'm struck by endlessly how complex and interesting that is. Um, 
But there seem to be those of us who think we kind of know what the levers are to pull. And those of us who've kind of gone maybe a step beyond that. And I'd say Elio from, from Brazil is in that and, and Annie's in that. Where they also get the trick that none of us like to be told that somebody else might know how we can be influenced. So Elio talks about the conscious consumer, not the good consumer. Not the way in which consumers behave but the fact that they should just be aware to make their own decisions. And Annie, you know, on the question of, 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 of how do you achieve world peace, yes, I think there is a problem. And yes, look at this film. What do you want? You know, Stephen Sacker says, what do you want us to do? I want you to watch it. We don't want to be told. It's enough to watch. And we're surely intelligent to do something, hopefully, positive with that information. So I think it's a question of, um, of empathy, because we're here because we want to empathise and to understand and to do something with that. And I felt very proud that I'd read the same article as a very, very clever and, yes, frightfully good-looking Neil Ferguson yesterday. I moved to New York um, three years ago, and I have now become addicted, as a very proud Guardian reader, um, of David Brooks in the New York Times. And he had a column a couple of weeks ago. If you look in, in the States and the... The, the, uh, depression, the recession we're in now. The last time, during the Great Depression, we had the Grapes of Wrath and we had the Great Gatsby. And that was the social spectrum. And now the great rise of the meritocratic society means that it isn't quite like that anymore. But is it actually, is it any better? Well, no, we're in this terrible recession. So what is it that we're still to learn? What are the nuts that still have to be cracked? And one of the reasons is that in the States, as in here, as in much of the world, we're continuing, to re we're continuing, continuing to reward technical prowess and technical expertise. Well, we're in a room full of people who don't have very much of that, quite frankly. But what we do have is a surfeit of opinions. And good on us. Let's use that to good effect. Because opinions rely on empathy and making those connections. And I think where this draws me to is... Lovely Paco and the generation of women going forward. Isn't that exciting? One of the things that many women bring, women like me, is that we try to juggle having fantastically interesting and intellectually demanding work with a much harder and more rewarding ta task, and much more important, of raising our creations. And raising your creations, raising your babies, forces you to become terribly empathetic because they're much harder work than clients. They won't do what you say, ever. <laughs> so you have to become patient and multitask and spin endless plates and try and get inside those little heads as they grow and change continuously. So I'm all for taking this weekend and looking to the future. How can we use our ability to be empathetic, to understand those people on the state and the estates that Charlie Ledbetter is talking about. Um, how can we understand um, the women in South Africa who learn they're pregnant and they're HIV positive in the same time? How can we understand the women, the, the people walking into in surgery? Um, and I don't know how we, we do do all of that, but I do know as one of those women, I'm looking forward to maybe having a little bit more of a seat in the driving seat taking it forward. Bridget, you've had a bit of a hard job because you were sort of closeted away preparing for your programme and for much of the time. So when you surfaced, what were your impressions? Well, thank you, Judah. I, I always feel when I come to conferences like this, 
and you hear so many interesting things and opinions, I always end up, at the end of it all, feeling it's very hard to make sense of it and just a little bit stupid. So um, I'll give you my personal impressions of what I thought, but I think often with a weekend like this, you need a bit more time to percolate before you really know what you've pulled away from it. But what's been going around in my head is the thought, this is, this is, we've been talking about loss of trust and privacy, and, and that's worrying. But balanced against that is a sort of celebration, actually, of a new era of empowerment of the individual at the expense of old elites. A move from hierarchies to networks, from vertical to horizontal. Um, as Charlie was saying, from for to to with by. Um, and in many ways, this is about blurring of boundaries. And that can be very liberating, this redefining of power, whether it's, as Mitch was telling us, redefining the relationship between doctors and patients, or as we've been talking about with... Um, uh, it came up yesterday um, with Helio, corporations and consumers, a lot of people in this room are very involved in that. But also redefining the difference between work and home, what you do in one place, what you do in another, the private space, the privacy, the public space. This gentleman on the phone, where did he think he was? In a private or a public space. And then the bigger concept of home, which came back to us so much from um, Yasmin's performance. It, actually, it's quite interesting that, I immediately thought, well, actually, the concept of home at a national level is quite resilient. You know, I think a lot of people here feel very much that they know that uh, uh, they feel very different from the United States, perhaps, or from a place called India or a continent called Africa. But actually, if you think about it, here we are in Wales. Is this my home? Is this my country? So even in the United Kingdom, it's a very problematic concept for all of us. It isn't just those who've taken a longer journey like Yasmin. But I suppose my thought is, what's been going on in my head all weekend is, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's a plea for some authority that you do need an order of priorities, you do need hierarchies, you do need some elites and some specialists, and narrow focus can be good. That is how, after all, all the new things that we're now tussling with came about, through specialists who pushed inventions forward. And um, carrying on thinking about that, I thought, well, you know, actually, when you think about what we've been talking about, Perhaps with the exception of Neil Ferguson, although perhaps his message amounted to the same thing, is we're very much focused on the here and now, with some fingering forward to try and work out what the future might be, but that's quite hard. We don't these days talk so much about the past and what past experience can tell us, because it feels as though the world we live in is so different from the last one. But I found it actually quite helpful to look back and think, well, the two big changes that we keep talking about here recent changes that have made our world so different are actually really good things. One is, I think Paco's quite right, a completely different role for women, which we're still sorting out, because the women have changed a lot, but those who have to navigate next door to them, the men, their role is not quite so clear in how it's changed. That's still going on. And the other one is the internet. And I was just thinking, in my background as, as BBC diplomatic correspondent, you know, when the world of computers first reared its head, it wasn't about empowerment. It was about the military and supercomputers. I remember an organization called COCOM in the 1970s and 80s, which was a NATO organization based in Paris, and its uh, sole purpose was to try and make sure that the Eastern Bloc did not get the high technology or indeed the, the, the um, intellectual 
material uh, so that they could keep up with the computer advances of the West, which turned out to be totally pointless when you move from the world of supercomputers into laptops. And now here we are with mobile phones. And how extraordinary it is that this whole technology, which has transformed the world, made it global, uh, made us all link up, caused these problems of privacy. But how extraordinary it is that we were all allowed to be empowered, almost by an accident of the people who invented it and who uh, first disseminated it, being absolutely sure that they wanted us all to be liberated by it and that it should be open source. It's actually, it seems to me, an extraordinary accident of history. So I come back to my idea of authority. And I think, you know, here we have these new organisations... Look at the EU and the problem that it's in. Look at G20 or any other financial organization that's trying to talk about how do we get regulation to deal with financial regulation? How do we have some sort of leadership in the EU that makes it a meaningful part of the world so that we aren't eclipsed by China and the United States, as Chris Patton said? And it comes back to leadership. And this means, although we've been talking a lot about consumers and marketing, it seems to me the need for leadership, which isn't driven by focus groups, but by virtues, as we heard yesterday, by aspirational ideals, which mean that you don't just go for something when it's a win-win situation, it's self-interest, but you have people who are prepared to stick their neck out and think strategically, not tactically. Take those risks that change the world, bring in new paradigms, make us do new things that we didn't even know we wanted to. So you're not just having news that the celebrity news that you know you want to consume, but someone gives you stuff that you didn't even know you wanted. And uh, that is what actually everyone is seeking out for, which is a kind of brings you full circle so that we start with empowerment, but then we end with feeling that we need something that's not just empowerment. We need individuals or groups who somehow provide leadership and that that's what's missing at the moment. So where does it come from? Well, I think the sense I've got this weekend is you don't necessarily have to look to the traditional people to be these beacons of trust. And a good example for us was here this morning with Annie Lennox. And what I liked about Annie was not just that she was so true to herself, but that she also talked about the power of music. And I don't think it's any coincidence that she gave such a powerful testimony because she looked into herself at something which isn't numbers and isn't just names, it's something else, it's something harder to grasp. And the final thing I took from her was that we can all be like Annie Lennox we look into ourselves, into that music. Who, who better than to sum, sum it up for us before we then discuss it all over again than Yasmin Alibi-Brown? That's the problem going last, isn't it? Everybody's done it all. Um, but, yeah, just a couple of things in my head. If any of you are going... To exchange my book in your bags for cake, <laughs> don't. <laughs> I've cast a spell, you'll have diarrhea like Aronovich. The <laughs> <laughs> second point, I must say, I was totally. Well, how can I put this? Thank you, chaps. I never knew how many of you were turned on by the sight of an Indian woman in bright colours, easy to remove. Uh, it's fantastic. It's just sort of vitamin a woman of my age needs. So thank you. Um, but but uh, what did I take away from it? I mean, I thought that the, uh, Mitch and Ian and that whole sphere was uh, extraordinary because 
it wasn't just for me about empathy. It was about the deeply human stories, which are often, I think, in medicine, particularly in medicine. Um, and I loved Graziella's input as well, that the human thing in it all, uh, which I really didn't expect, you know, because often I think we all, when you come to these things, we live in our heads. Um, the, uh, we've all praised Annie, but I was going, not going to go there, but I think the one thing that was very interesting about how she spoke, and it's what Bridget said, that it's the emotional integrity. And I think throughout these last two or three days, that's come up again and again, and Ian's was as well, that, that, that sense that what you are actually at least trying to be or say what you really believe, rather than what um, uh, people have told you will work. Um, I loved, because I'm so ignorant of it, I loved that first 715 session, not the time, but the event. Um, I, I just thought there were so many questions that I've gone away with here about the <coughs> privacy debate, I think, does get carried away. And like many people have said, that, you know, it really is it a problem if they know, uh, unless you are having the affair, like the man who was not in Brussels, uh, is it a, a problem to have all this information about you? Only if it is then in some way um, um, becomes an instrument to be used against you. But secrecy is a problem for me, partly because I'm a journalist. I want to know where Lord Ashcroft's money is and why he's not telling us. He's not entitled to that privacy, I'm sorry. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what I think about it, but certainly, and I raise the question, uh, you know, the, the question that um, we all say we want to have this privacy, but actually, we also want to have exposure, as, as um, um, David said this morning. We are not, you know, we pick and choose our moments when we uh, kind of fetishize privacy or when we kind of become um, as invasive as the people we say we detest. So it's something really to think about. But what I am clear about, though, um, is that all philanderers in public life must always be whipped in public. No, no question. Sorry, David. I mean, that, not just sport, it's real justice. It's probably because the last husband did what he did, but everybody else has to pay for it. Everybody's going to pay for it. Um, the, 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 the point about uh, politicians is a very important one. I think Neil's very right to remind us how important politics is. I think there's a general degradation of belief in politics, in, in a democracy, which I find quite alarming, having only come entered democracy at the age of 22, I tend to hold it, hold it quite precious. Um, and that those of us who have it are so, quite so easily dismissive of the processes, the system, and the people who do put them... I mean, I couldn't do it. I couldn't stand for election and go through all that they do. But I also believe that we have to, a right to demand what we did demand in the last six months. It's not because they can't have their privacy, but it is because, I mean, several MPs did not fall foul of, the, of, of um, what we feel they should have been doing. There were very good MPs who seemed to have an internal sense, never mind the rules, never mind what the chap in the, the clerk told them they could do and not do, an internal conscience that this was not their money and they needed not to spend it. Um, on, on stuff which should have come from their own pay packets. So I, I do think, but these are questions. I'm not, 
I just think it was really interesting to have these questions raised. I thought Andy, um, in that first um, session, really e educated me on the whole world as it is evolving and how the cultural catch-up, as ever, I mean, this, well, this is not new, every single phase of historical fast development, culture has had to play catch-up. And this is just another, except it's much faster, it's global, um, but the thing that really bothered me, uh, um, made me think, is the young people, I can't remember who talked about young people, as, like my daughter, our daughter, going on constantly and talking about herself. And yet, that age group is intensely private, wants to keep its privacy, and doesn't seem to understand. I hadn't understood, I have to say, until that session, that, of course, I have to go home now and get her to think about it. That whatever you're saying out there, and then you don't want people to know this about you, well, what do you think is going on? So I thought that was a really important um, um, session. Um, the, the Claire and Philip and um, Charlie's was um, uh, provocative. It, it woke me up from feeling ra rather like I was in a warm tub until then, and I think it was quite good to kind of feel, uh, I don't agree with that. Actually, I don't agree with that at all. I'm going to have to leave the room. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> and not be um, ill-mannered. But I think then you think about it, and there is a case, as uh, Philip said, for baseline ethics. And in my view, it's there. You know, we laugh at citizenship education. I don't, for the life of me, understand why we laugh and mock citizenship education. It's a terribly important thing, a binding thing for all the different children who make up this complex society. Um, Charlie's thing, I, I, I think, was brilliant, and it's, it's made me think again, again and again about... See, I don't believe everything can be localised or handed over to families and, and communities. I really don't believe that, and I think the Tory education policy, which is going along this, this line absolutely worries me. What it says is any loopy group, any obscurantist family collection of a clan can just reproduce their own prejudices in the next generation. What saved me in my life was that a teacher saved me from the kind of narrow-mindedness of my family. I don't think parents always know best. I don't know best for my children. My children should not be a replica of me and my husband, they should be themselves. And bloody hell, they are. One of them is even threatening to vote Tory. I don't know if I'll ever <laughs> speak to him again. But it's his life. It's his life, you know. Um, and finally, I, I think the, the thing, the, thing um, the unintended consequences is something we all, I suppose, take away. Um, and that, I don't know how you handle How do you know what you're going to do with what you don't know is going to happen. I don't know. Thank you. Well. There's just one problem, I think, with managing the hatred, as Neil puts it, which is how can you, how can you do that when you're so overwhelmed with love? And I'd like to ask Claire Fox, who in some senses, has reminded us this weekend about provocation. Whether Have we all been a bit too loved up here, Claire? Or have the ideas flowed freely enough in amongst the bonding? Claire? 
That really is putting me on the spot. Um, uh, you can just imagine that if I say that there was too much love, what a mean-spirited cow you'll all write me off as. Um, no, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's very important to have got away from London or the big cities and to come somewhere where we can't escape each other because we probably had lots of interesting conversations without looking at old Blackbridge the whole time. I mean, I, I think networking's too cynical a term for it. For me, what's been useful has been some genuine intellectual exchanges over a considerable few days and hours. And I thought that whoever made the point that it's difficult to actually say what we've learned exactly now, because you need to reflect on it, was really um, talking a lot of truth, because I've... I'm going to go away and think about a lot of things, so I've learned a lot, and therefore having the exchanges with people has helped develop that. On the other hand, <laughs> I do think it's the case that there's an awful lot that we haven't discussed that's very controversial and that sometimes people want to shy away from that. Give me a for instance. Well, I mean, I, I think that people are nervous about having rows with each other sometimes. I, I, I think that we should be grown up enough to be able to say things that offend each other without it meaning that we're all not going to talk to each other afterwards or that it's going to kind of end up as a kind of series of tweets. Um, you know, you actually do want to have a serious conversation that requires that we say difficult and unpalatable things because it seems to me there's no way that we can change society or take what David Aronovich said seriously and, in fact, what Neil has just said about the importance of politics unless we actually have, uh, well, you know, a battle of ideas. I mean, there has to be a contestation between different visions of society, and it has to be pretty brutal. I mean, sometimes it has to, by the way, involve hatred. There's an awful lot of ideas I hate. I don't, I don't necessarily want it to not hate. I mean, I, 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 it doesn't make me uh, that mean that I'm going to go out and be a nutter, I mean, despite what people might think. Um, I, 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 no, but you know what I mean. So, yes. So what I'd suggest is a good, healthy dose of irreverent intellectual pugilism is missing from politics today and we could have done with a bit more of it here but I didn't think we did too badly either and I thought that some of the loving was great fun and I like everybody else fell in love with Annie Lennox too she was she was an anti not, uh, she was an antidote to cynicism I walked in I thought what on earth is going to happen here celebrity blah de blah de blah and of course like everybody else nearly cried welled up was inspired and then thought, you know, even a hardened old hack like me can sit there and be totally inspired by that. I think, Julia, you take credit for that and for bringing us all together. Well, thank you. But I'd like to ask you to contribute freely because you know I'll pick on you if you don't. Cosmo, you volunteered. Cosmo Landsman. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, but I'd like to strike a dissenting uh, voice here. Excellent. I think we all know the great things we've gotten out of this weekend. We all know how terrific it's been and stimulating. But I think there's something... I've walked away feeling both elated and kind of depressed by this gathering, and I'll tell you why. It seems to me that we've refused to discuss a kind of broader vision of politics and what politics can mean. Our aspirations. Now, Paco seemed to be some, was the perfect paradigm. It was really a, a very entertaining presentation. But somehow, progressive ideas is down to good toilets for women's and better shelvings and retail. And the other debates is we want more privacy or less intrusion. 
What happened to the big dreams that we all had as, as youth about really changing society, addressing the issues of inequalities of wealth and power and what is going on to the third world? It's like that whole agenda doesn't matter. We want an agenda that makes our individual lives better, more comfortable, better shopping, better privacy, better politicians. We don't dare to dream anymore any big scales. At gatherings like this at one time, you would have heard radical visions of how things could be different, not just qualitatively better shopping experiences or better toilets. Can't we do better than that? Okay. Bruno. Bruno behind you and then Charlie Ledbetter. Yeah, Bruno uh, from TED. Uh, I, I don't actually agree with you at all. Uh, and uh, I am one of the few non-British here. Uh, so, and this is the first time I come to this gathering. Uh, so I, I look at this really from the outside. And I can tell you that... Uh, my takeaway is the political debate in Britain is way more vibrant and way more high level than what you can get anywhere else in Europe. I live in Switzerland. I'm Italian. I follow friends because I live just a couple of miles from the border. Uh, I can tell you this is a totally different world in terms of the level, the depth, and the intensity of the political debate, including what happened here in the last 48 hours. Thanks. Actually, on the way to Charlie Ledbetter, can we have David Davis? Because you're not a Guardian reading person, or you are a little bit. <laughs> now, honorary guardian reading person. Actually, but actually, I mean, why is. Uh, uh, defend the charge that there's not enough politics here or that there's too much or that we've lost the fire in our belly. It was all politics. Uh, but not enough politics here. It was all politics. By the way, when, uh, when uh, uh, somebody asked, uh, will the guardian readers put up their hands, I did actually put up my hand. Uh, but of course, I do read the guardian, the telegraph, the times, the <laughs> So it's a typical political response. Um, the. Uh, the um, <laughs> Uh, a couple of things. I mean, first thing, just, just a lesson I've learned is that in future when I'm interviewed on television or radio, normally we have a negotiation about how you're going to be interviewed, what questions to put, how long you have, and so on. It's a very simple rule now. I don't have to do all that. I just say, I want an interviewer who's going to fall in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> which, we, which we saw this morning. Now, um, the... Um, sorry, Stephen. Um, the, 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 a couple of things. I, the work, there was one... There was one session which I didn't understand a word. Sorry, Philip. Um, uh, the, the <laughs> that, uh, Philip Blondia. Yeah, the, the, uh, it seemed to me that we did an awful lot of good things. I mean, I think I will go away from this with seven, eight, nine questions to answer. Not answers, questions to answer, which I think is, is valuable for something like this. Uh, but there was also, um, and the, this is where I agree with Cosmo, I think there was... Um, no real hard resolution process. There were a lot, uh, there were lots of times. I mean, let's take the privacy issue. Privacy is incredibly important, but we all want to be able to use Google, and we all want to be able to get our pro uh, products on time, want to get, all want to get our ads and so on. So we need a really rather sophisticated solution. For example, in that case, maybe we should have ownership of our own identity, all the information that belongs to us and so on. We didn't really get into anything quite as tight as that. So... There was a lot, to, lot, lot, to, the lot that I've learned, a lot of questions I've taken away from it, but I still think that we've got a hell of a lot more re resolution to do. Thank you. Charlie? Well, two things. Um, one is that actually in quite a lot of areas of what the work that I'm engaged in, there is a mixture of a sense of exploding possibility, say with the internet, and complete stuckness in other parts of our lives. And I feel that in, in politics as well, because actually... 
I, I agree with Cosmo and Claire to some extent. I'm not very keen on Claire's pugilistic kind of... I don't want to be beaten up by Claire, basically. But, um, uh, but I, I do agree with that. But I think there's also been a vibrancy here that actually um, Bruno is right. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't believe... You know, there's nothing like this in France. There's nothing like it in Germany. So we shouldn't beat ourselves up about that. But I just wanted to underline one thing that Graciela said, which I think is really, really important. She said, to be a free-thinking person, you have to be prepared to be isolated. And what she was saying was, to be a free-thinking person, you have to be prepared to be not respectable. And one of the dangers about this gathering is that it's desperately respectable. And you can't really be an innovator and be respectable. You have to be a pirate, a maverick, a renegade, or a crook, um, at least some of the time. So that, I think, is one of our challenges, is how you sort of marry a kind of atmosphere, a kind of devout respectability with a desire for innovation. But doesn't that come back to the point about authenticity, which is you can't have faux authenticity. You can't... No, I so don't want to programme next year's Names Not Numbers in terms of... I need somebody edgy. No, no, I completely agree. So the people, all the people who who kind of you know make a lasting impression, uh, Yasmin, Mitch, in a sort of emotional way, and of course Annie. I mean, Bridget got it completely right. Annie has taken the risk to really look inside herself and think, what do I really believe in and what do I really want to do? But doesn't Annie also epitomise something that you might be overlooking in everybody else, which is the appearance can be deceptive. So you might all give the appearance of being respectable, <laughs> unmaverick. And then in the course of that conversation, that five minutes that Ian said turns into the lifetime, you realise you've got somebody who has similar rebellious views, is it not Well, I the suspect case? the value of these weekends for people like us is that it might just allow us to reconnect with those bits of ourselves which are kept suppressed most of the time by our jobs. So I'm going to ask the panel briefly and then come back to John Smythe and Martin and everyone wants to say. I mean, Neil, what's your view about, about all that? Do you think you're, you don't, you're not I mean, that I share, respectable, I share, are you? I share, um, I share Cosmo's uh, frustration. I mean, the big mission in the world is for us rich aristocrats in this highly developed country to be somehow democratically outvoted so that the money and transfer and fairness operates on a global scale. It doesn't operate in the, in the na nation state anymore. One of the most interesting things that's going to happen over the next week or two is whether or not the German political psyche um, supports the poorer countries of Greece and then subsequently Portugal and others and holds together the imperfect democracy of the European Union. Um, and, I mean, a lot of us here are not players in that at all. If the Germans do it, that will be twice in the second half of the century that they've done the heavy lifting to hold Europe together. And at that point, we've got to have a huge existential shift when we forget about 1945 and realise how important they are. That's the real scale of stuff. Now, I do conferences uh, as, as a business... This is a tiny market. What Julius put together is wonderful, but you know, barely economic in terms of the whole effort. I'm very conscious that I can't take the big policy events that I do. I can hardly take them outside of London. That partly to take Philip Blonde's bit about broken society and use these words carefully. It's not about just uh, you know the, the dispossessed and the poor. 
If you go to whole bits of Britain, there is no political policy dialogue between the business community, the civic community, the middle classes. It's hollowed out. Um, it's only a few people, and it's wonderful to be here to be part of it, like Julia that's doing it, or like uh, John Gordon who's been doing the Intelligence Squared debates in London where he can fill a room with 2,000 people. Um, and, you know, there are some signs that it's coming. Uh, and the, you shouldn't mistake the quality of what's happened here with the idea that, there's, that there might be a mass behind us, because I'm not sure there is at the moment. Okay. And I do keep emphasising, if you want to do good and feel good about your politics, join an NGO, but it's not enough. If you want to do good and feel good and you want to win and change things, then you've got to fight the negatives, the hatreds, the blame. You've got to prepare to take them on, and it means you're going to have an argument. And as you say, as you can tell, I like to come here because I get out of my usual cautious business self, and I, can, I nearly told somebody what I thought of them last night, but fortunately, <laughs> Julie, uh, <coughs> Julie <coughs> uh, rescued me. Yeah. <laughs> Last year, last year, Charles Stuart Smith said he conceived with me. This year, I had to say I undressed Neil. I had to physically take his coat off to stop him leaving. Someone had so incensed him, so don't tell me there wasn't hatred, because I saw it last night briefly. Now, as we race to the finish, everybody wants to have a bit of a say, so I'm going to make everybody be brief. Take no prisoners. Start with you, William. Briefly. Briefly. Uh, I do agree with Cosmo. I thought there should have been more, more of an argument, more of a row. Uh, I thought David Aronovich made a really good point yesterday when he revealed how few of us were party politically involved. I think actually one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last few days is the tightening of the opinion polls because it does mean that we might actually have an interesting general election and I just hope to God that the parties decide what they do believe in so that we can decide whether we believe in them believing in it. That's a very good point. John Smythe and then Martin. Now, thank you uh, all for that. Um, I, uh, three things. One, Briefly. humility. One, humility, uh, being amongst you all, so thank you very much. Second word is transformation. Uh, I had a tough year last year, and so this experience has been very personally transforming, so I thank you all for that. And my, my sort of uh, to-the-topic point is that I spend my life inside companies, on the shop floor, helping the people to bring about change. And for me, this has been about the outer world rather than the inner world, but that my big reflection... Uh, is that if we're going to make the inner world of work a revolution, we need the political context for it. Thank you. Martin? Yeah, Claire, will, Claire Fox will find this surprising, but I agree with everything she said today. Um, uh, what she won't find surprising is I disagree with pretty much everything she, she said yesterday. Um, and, yes, let's have that debate. Uh, and there needs to be edge. But at the same time, I think it needs to be courteous. And uh, one of the things that uh, I would say, Claire, is that uh, uh, we need to have not just rhetoric and critique, which we're all very good at, we need to have practical suggestions. And next year I'd like to see some horrible word outcomes from this where we are suggesting where we may move forward practically. And Claire, also, uh, if you want to have that debate, you will have to accept me as your Facebook friend. <laughs> Graziella. Oh, okay. The row begins. Graziella. Uh, just, it's very difficult to say this very briefly, but it has to be brief. Um, I see this as a British, very British gathering, um, where the British are looking 
at themselves in transforming themselves, which, see, the British are both very insular and very global. And looking with repugnance and uh, extraordinary interest to the other side of the Atlantic for this little Frankenstein that they have created. And I saw a little bit of that in the exchange between Peter and Paco that I thought was priceless. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, but I think going beyond that, and picking on what everybody has so interestingly said now, um, there is this other part of the Brits. Uh, they are very global. They have a disproportionate importance in global thinking. Use it. All right, so a call to action. Uh, Bridget, what's your... Yeah, picking up from what Graciela said, I don't, I don't think she'll mind me um, repeating what she said to me when we first met yesterday, which is, everyone here is so British. They're all clones of each other. Where does the, where's the diversity? Which, you must admit, is true. Um, but, um, and this goes to what Claire is saying, and, and Charlie, too, I really like what Charlie said, but, you know, you can have... How many conferences have we been to where everyone stands up and they're in... They really want to say their bit, but they don't engage with each other. And what has been very nice about this is that it may be small, but it has meant the conversation began on Friday and it has continued. Everyone's been at most of the sessions. And if they haven't, they felt the loss. And uh, there has been a proper conversation. And, and when people have contributed from the floor, it's not because they've waited five minutes to make a point which is long gone. It's, it, it has contributed to the whole symphony that's been created. And... The last thing I'd just say is that when you do have a room full of people who may be a little bit of a clone of each other, that can be quite dismaying. And I sometimes you know, walk through to and thought, my God, all these people are exactly like me. <laughs> Went to the same school, speak the same kind of language on the whole, and you know, what can we do that's useful? But I must say, as a, as a journalist and someone who deals with these programmes, when you have polemics, you air the views, you usually don't get anywhere. When you have a room full of people, especially if it's quite a small room, where there is some sort of consensus about the things we care about, you can get somewhere. And I'm, I'm not sure if coming up with action plans is always the most important thing. I stay with what I said earlier, which is it's that stuff that filters through to all of us individually and that we remember in a week's time and makes us do something different in a month's time. Yes, I agree. Elena Kennedy. I, I've, um, I've learned a lot just listening to people. It's been really, really interesting and wonderful. I mean, one of the things, the expressions that was used yesterday was something that I, I will take away with me and think about hard. And it was when Neil, I know and I've heard speaking before, but when he spoke about regulatory capture being his, one of his explanations for what went wrong with the banking system, he was talking about a kind of coziness that in our attempts in the new politics to create more, if you like, horizontal systems rather than hierarchical ones, um, uh, we, what we find is that we end up not having, if you like, really proper sorts of regulation, even if it's light touch, in the areas where it's needed. And he described that happening in the banking system as one of the causes. But it's also what happened, of course, with the parliamentary allowance problem, where there was, if you like, capture of the fee office. It's also what happens, for example, happened only recently with the select committee on, uh, on the security services, praised a lot by Charles last night on accountability. But there's a lot of people doing the kind of work I do around the, the complicity and torture issue and so on, and the quality of intelligence, who would say, actually, there's been a certain amount of capture there where Labour and government has been in awe of the intelligence agencies. So 
there are whole issues, I think, about in attempting to create new systems which are more horizontal and, if you like, more... Um, have more, if you like, uh, emotional integrity and that we aren't hierarchical, we actually somehow are undermining some of the, some of the institutions that need to exist in a more hierarchical way, in the way that uh, Bridget spoke about. But sometimes you do need to have a holding to account by, by uh, people who know. Um, I think, I mean, I I've looked at this because of chairing the power inquiry. I think that our political parties have not understood at all the way in which our society has changed. They do not understand at all how uh, people have changed within our societies. And until they do, there's going to be a continuing following, falling away from confidence in the political party system. And so I think that in reinventing parties, in order for, as, as you've described, Neil, um, the way in which we have to, you need parties politics in order to, one of the things that politics does is not just about dealing with hatred, it's about also um, talking about how you distribute uh, the resources within our society, and that's where parties are very different. So all I would say is, we have to come back here and talk more about politics. Honorary long contribution. Jessica, am I alone, but wonderful, oh, am I alone in thinking the point is actually not to have outcomes, not because... This is a glorified focus group and we're really taking your feedback because it's not designed to be like that. But is this not like a piece of intellect, a piece of art? We're here because we're here and what we take away or don't take away is enough. Is the point to have a point? Well, I just think it's about potential. And I think that, you know, if this is the... Are we two years into the 17 years? Yeah, Indeed so we we've are. got quite a long way to go. And I think that... Um, the, uh, what struck me was that the potential to have, you know, what do we do with all the comments that we've had? We could have had, and this is, a, this is a sign of how good this is, we could have had lots of brilliant discussions about how we can solve the world's problems, right? You know, and I think that one of the British nature of this weekend that strikes me, and this connects with what um, Helena was saying, is that politics in this country... You know, I, I, if any of my kids said they wanted to be an MP, I would be seriously worried. And we think this is bad. Look at what's happening in the States. I mean, my God, you know, on health reform. They've talked about it for years and they still can't do it. It's seriously, seriously gone wrong. And yet, we all want to live in a better, more just, fairer society. As somebody said, being good is good for you. And I think that's what I said this week. We all want to be good and we want to make the world better. And yes, I'm sure, you know, we can improve politics, but it seems a pretty sick machine at the moment. So my take out on it is what Graciela was saying. Raise our sights. Don't think just about this island. It's one world. We've got all these brilliant brains. And the really big outtake for this weekend, so I'm going seriously off-piste, is that actually... Yes, it's very interesting talking to, 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 to journalists. It's very interesting, you know, think tanks and academics. But the things that really made us think is the creative input, seeing the pictures, hearing the music, hearing from the artists. And so if there's my one takeaway is let's have more of that. Let's be more ambitious, more creative. Yes, arguments, but actually more creative. I'm going to take two more points. Uh, I'm going to finish... Robin White only on the condition that he overshares with us his very particular Port Merion experience. That's the, that's the condition, Robin. Uh, and very briefly, Colin Tweedy, then very briefly, Robin White, and then we have a minute of closing, and Yasmin. Jessica Morris has virtually stolen what I was going to say, but four people 
had interventions which I'd like to um, describe as this. Charles Hazelwood used music to bring us together. Ian Hutchinson used art to bring us together. Yasmin used acting to bring us together. And Annie Lennox, unfortunately, didn't use her song (laughs) to bring us together. She just used her wonderful genius. It's the power of art, which is what it's about. Thank you. Robin, Yasmin, sorry. Um, Some of you know I I was here 47 years ago before I went to Cambridge, and it was an amazing experience doing all sorts of things, Uh, one of which was, and they are putting a blue plaque up later, I lost my virginity here, so I've been visiting visiting that site and having sacred memories. (laughs) But... um, uh, but but, but the, the distinction I was going to make. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take stop. I'll take you there later. Stop. <laughs> Oversharing alert. Stop. Stop. Enough. But the, I'd like to make the distinction between networking and not working because I think what happens in this gathering, you get into a space where we're not on the conveyor belt and our minds can open up. And what I've been really interested in, it builds on the last two contributions, is this balance between our rational minds um, and our which we're all very polished with, and our emotional minds. And the things, the distinction between all what we, what we felt uh, about some of those things and what we, what we thought. And I think this balance between the logical mind and the emotional mind, and you spoke at the end about this need for leadership. I think one of the problems that maybe David Cameron's having, having problems is that he's not in touch with his feelings. It's all filtered through focus groups, and maybe our leadership can, can get in touch with their emotions. We can all be more emotional and realise that we don't always just have to be smart. Thank you. Yasmin. There were some very serious issues that I'm really sorry we didn't have big fights about. And it seems to me, uh, Helena touched on it yesterday, Um, the security, the war on terror, um, the heightened, when we were talking about the, the, what did you call it, the fear, the, um, your session was called what? Catastrophic risk. Yeah, I think that is so central to it. So those quite dangerous things, David, David, and the other thing is the crossover in politics. David and I, David Davis and I probably uh, disagree about everything, but then we come together on this whole security issue. And that is the extraordinary thing about this, that I wouldn't have him to tea even now, but he's quite good. Well, on that... On that... Uh, a long time ago, I used to work in fundraising, and I went to a convention in America... And I went to a session about major donor giving, and in particular women, and why and how women gave. And it was particularly how women gave uh, after their husbands had died. And America's full of a lot of rich people, uh, and there's a lot of wealth that these women had, and they didn't know how to use it. And it turned out that the key to getting women to donate was two things. One was teaching them to overcome their reticence that they hadn't written a check or whatever. But it was to tap into why they wanted to give in the first place and what they cared about. And the session was called, and I thought it was very cheesy at the time, but I realised it was, it was just accurate. The session was called, I give because it touches my heart. And actually that's what they found, is that if you connected with what you were being asked to give to you would give generously. And 
I just would like to end on a note that whatever else has transpired, we have all given, I think, very generously of our time, of our intellect. As a banker said to me only last night, he said, I found it very interesting, he said, but that performance of Yasmin Alibar-Brown, he said, it reached into my soul. Um, and, and finally, as I used to say on News at 10, um, I, we did all the thank yous last night, and I did thank Julia, but I forgot to give her her present. So I'm going to give her a present now, and what better way to end than for all of us to say, Julia, thanks, Mum. LAUGHTER